Hello and welcome to episode 73 of ERRX and the final episode of the three-part mini Grand Round series on phenobarbital. So last week in part two of the series, we discussed the literature supporting the use of phenobarb in alcohol withdrawal and my site's own phenobarb protocol. And then this week in part three of the series, we're going to bring on a guest to talk about a study that he just got published last month in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. That study was entitled Phenobarbital and or Benzodiazepines for Recurrent Alcohol Withdrawal, a Self-Controlled Retrospective Study. And I'm super excited about this week's guest. He graduated from the University of the Pacific and completed his PGY-1 pharmacy residency training at San Francisco General. And he is now a full-time clinical pharmacist at Providence in the Santa Rosa area, spending most of his time in the ED. He is also the co-author of the study we're going to talk about today. Please welcome Alex Steidel. Hi, thanks for having me. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, definitely. I had, uh, you know, Alex, actually, we got into contact probably about a year and a half ago through the ERRX podcast, uh, the Instagram page. I think you reached out to me. Uh, we, you know, had since that time kind of had a few interesting discussions about pharmacy and medicine and, you know, occasionally send each other uh, a funny meme or two and just, you know, general knowledge sharing and story sharing that goes on, you know, in our field uh, of pharmacy and medicine. And I was looking for a good study on phenobarbital to kind of wrap up uh, the series that that I'm doing. And I found your study. And obviously, I didn't know it was yours at the time, you know, and then I kind of read through it. I was just going to discuss it on my own. And I was like, wait, I think I know this Alex dude. <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure that uh, I've talked to him on Instagram. And of course, I reached out to him and uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's me. So uh, total accident, but I'm super happy that it happened because uh, what better way to get an idea of how people run studies, the things they look for, and the things they found that is just sometimes very hard to capture in, you know, a two or three page paper. So thanks again, Alex. Yeah, definitely. Glad at least one person has read it. <laughs> yeah, at the very least. And probably, you know, a handful of uh, people will now hear it on a podcast. <laughs> so jumping right into the episode um, and into your study, can you Tell us some background about your site, um, your location, kind of your typical volume um, in the ED, um, and potentially even the ICU, so we can kind of get a handle of uh, who a study like this would apply to. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to uh, preface this with, this is my first primary authorship, and anyone who's probably gone through that recognizes that these tend to be a little bit of a labor of love. So where, where I did this study and the population set was originally my residency site, and it has no affiliation with where I practice now in terms of the data set. Um, always complicated when your projects interval across different work environments. But um, the big thing is, I'm sure anyone who works in emergency medicine these days will not argue with the fact that the bulk of the patients that you're going to see present with some degree of alcohol withdrawal. Now, whether that's due to the withdrawal itself or they're a trauma patient and they come in and then they happen to withdraw whatever, um, especially at San Francisco General, where this site was actually um, that hosted this study for me. Um, the I would say at least 
few times a day, alcohol withdrawal patients come through. And then I'm sure everybody also can think of patients that you see frequently enough where you know them. You either know them by name, you know them by, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, their, their persona. So everyone has frequent their, flyers. yeah, their frequent flyers, <laughs> their, their greatest hits patients. Mm-hmm. And we look through the data and, you know, the, the use of phenobarbital at San Francisco general was uh, commonplace. I'm sure some people either remember or dread the comings and goings of diazepam or lorazepam. So sites have had to institute, you know, substitutions over the few years due to shortages. And we were thinking back on this and we were back to the point where, you know, we have phenobarbital, we have diazepam, we have lorazepam. And we were wondering, well, what can we do with the information we have? We see numerous patients a year. Is there something we can get out of this? And we read through pretty much every study that we could come across. And a lot of them were very meat and potato style studies. You know, this versus that, this versus that, benzos versus phenobarbital. And then I had the idea of like, well, let's maybe look at um, our frequent flyer population. Is one better than another with this recurrent alcohol withdrawal and looking at high recidivism? And that kind of stemmed the idea of like, all right, now we're going to do something different. Um, I didn't just want to add yet another paper that is, to be fair, kind of, you know, just a repeat of something that's been done. And given the nature of retrospective designs, there's only so much you can really do. So we decided to look back on our patients that were coming back frequently enough to be in multiple treatment groups. And then the idea would be they'd be a uh, patient's own control model or self-control model, depending on the terminology you want to use. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration for it. I love that, man. That is a fantastic idea. And so that was your your PGY-1 residency project that uh, kind of followed you through the years. And um, so that would have been, what, just a few years after you graduated residency that this got published? Yeah. So, you know, it's like everything else. You kind of, you get it going and then work is demanding. Everything else is demanding after residency. And then I, I kind of kept along with it, kept drafting it, um, submitted it. Eventually, I felt like, all right, again, I had... Um, also co-authored another paper that someone else had led on the use of topical capsaicin for hyperemesis syndrome. So I had a little bit of experience, um, but I wasn't a primary author, right? I wasn't doing most of the drafting work. Um, so this came around and I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it myself. I had, uh, some input from my co-authors obviously done it many more times than I have. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just, it's a lot of work to do your, your first paper. Cause it's hard to let go. I feel like at a certain point, I'm always worried that I'm going to end up being that paper in a journal club somewhere that someone's like, man, this is just really wish they would have done this or whatever. <laughs> right. So eventually right. You, hit a, you hit a point where you're like, all right, I got to just, I just got to let it go. You let a couple people read it, look for things that maybe they're a little, you know, uncertain about redraft it. But at a certain point, you just got to let it go out there. Kudos to you. You know, I've tried publishing my uh, first year residency project uh, a few times and it is such a tedious and uh, and difficult and annoying process, <laughs> and um, and it's 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 really hard. You know, it's really hard to get to get published. So you know, congrats to you guys. So let's tell me about the the study design. Um, you mentioned a little bit about how you selected your patients, and then just in general the interventions that that happened to these patients. Yeah. So the big thing is, okay, so we settle in on, we want to look at our frequent flyer population, the high recidivism folks. And then we kind of came around with the ideas of what do we want to compare? So initially the idea was let's look at them from just benzos versus phenobarbital. Um, And then what I found is when you're dealing with retrospective studies, you tend to get a lot of information that you start wondering, well, 
if we make it too specific, we're going to lose our large N that we have. Um, so how can we maintain like a strong number of, of inclusions of cases? And then it gets a little bit confusing when you're doing a self-controlled study because your number of patients, but your number of cases may not be the same, right? So initially we thought just benzos versus phenobarbital, and then that turned into a three-arm group uh, after I looked at the data for the time frame I designated with about a year um, of you know one, the other, or both, which I think both does infiltrate practice very often. Um, so we decided to include it. Maybe maybe there is an advantage. If anything, it'll give me some uh, safety information, whatever. You don't really know what you're going to get out of it. So the next question became, do we do like a matched cohort where one patient ends up in the groups and then that's it. They get one visit to the ED and then we match it down. Um, and what I found is uh, that would just cut down the, the volume of patients um, that were going to be in the study by a significant amount, uh, the number of cases. So instead of being, I want to have the paper in front of me. So instead of being about like 137 unique patients, it would be then, you know, maybe 137 or double that encounters. So we decided just to be, if you were, qualified through the original matching criteria, you made it through. So some patients are represented more times than others. Um, But in the setting of practice, I feel like that was just more realistic of what we see. Some patients come back more than others, right? So we decided to leave it in a much larger and include all the encounters that a patient qualified for and not do a match cohort. Plus, that would also enter the risk of bias. Like, okay, did I select the right admissions for this patient or visits rather to, to use. So we want to avoid the selection bias component as well. And it was just a little bit easier. Uh, downside, much more work to dig through all those charts, but it was worth it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, to, to be clear, you know, this study, uh, we're going to talk about the results, uh, a little bit later, but for the listeners the there was three groups, um, in, in Alex, um, and, and his, um, co-authors study, it was a group um, as he mentioned, um, that received phenobarbital alone, uh, a group that received benzodiazepines alone, and then a group that received a combination of phenobarbital and benzodiazepines for alcohol withdrawal. Correct? Yeah. Awesome. And what you're saying is you took each individual encounter, so one patient may have been in the phenobarb-only group but then also maybe came back and then had just benzos the next time. And then the third time they might've even been uh, back, they might've received phenobarbital in combination with benzos. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct. So the, the big catch all is the, at least one time had to be in the phenobarbital only group. And then separately um, they had to have like the benzo group. Um, so that's why if you actually look at like the number of visits between groups, they're not quite equal. Um, but the number of patients are pretty well represented, which came out pretty good when you look at like the tables for demographic and clinical characteristics, right? Everything right. was very, very close because at the end of the day, the patients are in both groups pretty significantly, some bias a little bit more than others, as I stated, um, you know, not the same number of patients in every group. Some could have a few more benzodiazepine visits than phenobarbital visits, however. Um, correct. Correct. But it did what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. And I mean it looks really nice. Like you said, it's it's so much cleaner when you compare the same patient um in a in a different group to basically themselves, right? So they you kind of take away that that table one of of baseline characteristics is is and should be um they should have no significant differences between each other, correct? Or they should be very, very close, which is what we have. And, you know, since I, I really want to focus a, a little bit more on the sites and obviously the studies 
um, phenobarbital dosing protocol. So we all kind of are familiar with, you know, benzo dosing in general. Uh, but you know, not a lot of people are familiar with how sites are giving phenobarbital. So how do you guys give phenobarbital? So what was encouraged at San Francisco general was we didn't, we didn't do the traditional loading dose. We would do either usually 260 milligrams, uh, occasionally 130 milligrams as like a, a first dose. And then every 30 minutes or so we would redose. We allow them to do 130 was usually, uh, the redose, but if they're particularly, we felt like they were behind in their care, they might get another 260. Um, but loading doses were not used at that site. Okay. And this is something that I had discussed, you know, in the previous episode was that there is a number of ways to dose phenobarb, you know, and I think when people are a little bit uncomfortable with giving it, knowing that, hey, you know, my particular site's protocol is to give 10 mg per kilo ideal body weight, which can be, you know, six, 700 milligrams. And if that's scary for people, or if they're maybe not in as severe of a withdrawal, there's so many different ways you can do it, right? You can give the 260, you can repeat that, you can give 130, you can give 65. If the phenobarb is taking 30 minutes to come from pharmacy, you can pull a vial out, you know, from your Pixis machines or Acidos machines or whatever you have in the ED. You can give them a 65 milligram dose while you're waiting for the infusion to come down. Um, and so I really like that uh, the way you guys do it, um, kind of the slow play versus we just slam them with 10 per kilo most of the time. And uh, um, and either way uh, works, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's what we've been seeing. Um, so I just want people to realize that um, there are many different ways to give phenobarb and they all will give you very, very similar results. Yeah, phenobarb has all just been one of those. It's, there's so many different ways to utilize it. Lo the, the loading dose, you know, sometimes you see five milligram as a loading dose uh, versus the 10 per kilogram. Um, some sites redose every 15 minutes, um, preferentially, you know, versus 30. Like uh, for, for me, it's one of those drugs where there's, there's a lot of ways to use it. And there's really no, I don't say there's no real wrong way, except if for me, the, the 10 milligram per kilogram is just a little bit something that outside of my comfort zone in terms of how I've seen it respond. But I think you'll, you could definitely find a hundred people who'll disagree with me on that completely, but. Correct. Correct. And we'll probably get into it a little bit later. Um, again, it depends on how, how severe is the withdrawal. You know, I think, um, you know, CWA scores on average that, that maybe you have in your study might be a little bit lower or a little bit higher than somebody else might see. Right. So that's where all that clinical judgment comes into play of, you know, do I give the 10 or do I just kind of give 260 and, and kind of see how they do. And since we're on that same topic of outcomes, um, what were the outcomes of your study? What were the notable things that you guys found? How many total patients were included? Things like that. Yeah. So when you start thinking about how, what do I care about, right? And what do I care about from the um, emergency medicine perspective? Uh, we didn't really worry about what happened once they go inpatient um, as that starts to dilute the the purpose of the study. But the big one obviously is always were they admitted to the hospital service? I think that's the number one in everybody's mind. Can I send them home or are they, are they going to stay a while? And we were dealing with recurrent alcohol withdrawal, especially when that's their primary reason for showing up, you know, second to trauma or something like that, where they earned an admission anyway, that's a different story. But what we wanted to see was, could we spare some uh, admissions? And that's just a cost savings measure and utilization of resources consideration. Um, you know, this 
demographic of patients is often underinsured or completely uninsured. Um, so reimbursements tend to be low or non-existent, uh, things like that. They're obviously alcohol withdrawal is going to take away from your ability to potentially service other patient needs. So that was our primary focus. The second thing we started considering was this return within 48 hours. There's a lot of, um, I don't want to say like lore about it, but a lot of people that I've discussed the use of phenobarbital had concerns about, well, with this long half-life, if I give them, you know, the loading dose or whatever milligram they reach of phenobarbital total, what happens if I discharge them and during the next 24, 48 hours, while they still have phenobarbital on board, they start drinking again or they do whatever else they're doing. Is there going to be a difference in the safety profile versus what I'm traditionally used to, which is something like lorazepam um, with or without a Librium taper. So we decided to look at return within 48 hours partially as a safety endpoint. Was there going to be a difference in them coming back for any reason? Falls, you know, worse intoxication, et cetera. Um, or on the flip side, did it have some sort of mythical benefit to prevent them from coming back in general? So it could have gone either way. We just decided that that was going to be a primary thing. You know, keep them from going in, keep them from coming back. Um, then we have your, you know, more nitty gritty type of endpoints. So ED length of stay, can we get them out sooner? I think that's a straightforward understanding. Disposition. So this is just going to be, okay, now if they're going to go in, into the hospital, what kind of level of care are they going to require? I know some institutions with phenobarbital may sway heavy on the ICU uh, side, depending on the total dose received. Um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily the case uh, with San Francisco General, but you know, I do know that if someone's getting more than you know a thousand milligrams total, that conversation comes up. And then obviously safety endpoints, the two big ones being hypotension and uh, bradypenia, just for the most common uh, events. Perfect. And what did you guys find for those? Was anything statistically significantly different between the three groups? Well, for the primary endpoints, no. So it didn't really seem to matter what you used. They're, if they're going to go inpatient, it seemed like it, it, they, were going, they were going that way. And to be clear, um, the cutoff was to uh, disposition. So for a lot of these groups and their inclusion criteria, I made the decision that once the physician has made up their mind that this patient is being discharged or admitted, um, the final decision on that, that was it. I didn't follow anything else that happened because at that point, the endpoints were finalized, right? They're going home. They're not going home. Um, same thing for ED length of stay. Um, that was basically a, a similar idea, and but that went to actual transfer. That one actually did seem to um, favor one group uh, over another. So phenobarbital did seem to have a significantly different um, and reduced length of stay in the emergency department. And I could try to apply, you know, reasoning to why this occurred, being that it's retrospective, you'll never really know. But one advantage we had is uh, the phenobarbital dosing seems to allow us to redose pretty quickly, especially in comparison to the dominant choice of lorazepam. Um, and then also with a long half-life, I felt like we were able to reassess the patients and determine whether or not they were able to leave um, quicker. Um, so basically, we're just very aggressive on it. Interestingly, uh, the length of stay was much longer in the combination group, and I think we'll talk about that later. Disposition. So going to the medical surgical floor, that didn't seem to be different across groups, but ICU admissions were higher in the combination group. Um, you know, if you just look at the raw percentages, um, they weren't high overall, um, but the combination did seem to bias the patients towards an ICU admission. And then um, the bradypenia, so respiratory depression, very few events. And I, I had a very, I would say, strict 
interpretation of the respiratory rate. So if at any point they dipped below 10, they made that mark. Um, and the, the rate of occurrence was actually quite low overall, given the, the number of uh, cases I looked at. Um, and then hypotension did have a little bit of a bias again towards the combination group. Um, and again, I did define that somewhat strictly with, you know, maps lower than 65 or just a systolic less than 90. But the combination group, once again, seemed to lead towards a pathway that was less desirable statistically. Yeah. Thanks for breaking that down. I was really, really curious, you know, when I was reading your study, because I really wanted to see, as you did, if there was any difference uh, in these groups. And, you know, it being, you know, a retrospective study f- from one site, I-, I didn't really have high hopes that we would catch anything super significant. Um, but it it did do something for me. You know, it was, as you had mentioned, um, and as I had discussed in the previous episodes, there is that that risk of combining the benzos with the phenobarbital, right? So we talk about, in your study, the patients that got both uh, needed significantly higher levels of care, and they spent a significantly longer time in the ED. Um, and as you had mentioned, the combination group had more respiratory depression, which which wasn't significant, um, but they did have significantly more uh, events of hypotension. And as I'm reading your study, you know, you had also mentioned that three of your patients were intubated and of those three patients, all of them had only received benzodiazepines, you know, as opposed to the combination group, which you could reason, you know, they got phenobarb, so then they got less benzos. And so maybe that phenobarb was maybe protective against maybe the intubation? Um, Is the phenobarb a little bit safer when it comes to that? So it leaves some questions unanswered, um, but it's definitely something to think about. Um, Is this something that a finding that you were anticipating, you know, given the additive effect of the benzodiazepine and the phenobarb on that GABA receptor? Or was this something that you discovered and were like, whoa, like I, I guess I didn't even think about the fact that giving both might be kind of dangerous, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I had a hunch early on in, uh, that the synergistic effects might be a problem. Um, so that's why we really wanted to include that third arm. And also people do it all the time, right? They're, they're, there's very common to see both. So I was just curious and maybe for these patients, both was going to be better. Um, but in this case, um, you know, for the, for the note effects that I saw, I thought was interesting, but then we look at the intubation case and, you know, even when I, I, curbside folks who work at other institutions and I, I hear their rates of intubation for alcohol withdrawal. I almost thought it was interesting how low our intubation rates were for our site. You know, if you think, all right, 642 encounters and three people get intubated, a lot of sites that's, it would be significantly higher for whatever reason. Um, and even, even if you look at the reason why they were getting intubated, um, some of them just had reasons where it probably didn't matter what group they were going to be in, they were going to get intubated, right? So, one had uh, facial trauma and their withdrawal was not necessarily the primary reason for being there, but that led them down the route to get intubated. Um, only one was actually genuinely due to their withdrawal status. And that was more or less just they showed up already in pretty significant withdrawal and we just weren't able to catch up with the benzodiazepines. So that that's uh, that was actually quite unexpected. I Had I been a betting man, I probably would have expected it to be higher. And mostly in the combination group, especially given the, uh, you know, propensity towards more hypotension. And while it wasn't statistically significant, if you look at the percentages, 
you know, there was trending towards more bradypenia in the combination group. So that was unexpected. Okay. And it kind of brings me to the, to the next point of, you know, I look at some of your tables here and I notice that the patients who received phenobarb, you know, and to be clear, the, your phenobarb monotherapy group, the dose of phenobarb they got was almost the same as the phenobarb combination group, right? Mm-hmm. In, in combination with benzos. Um, but the the people that got phenobarbital ended up needing less benzodiazepine overall, right? So yeah, it's like, a, which makes sense, right? Um, as you guys were digging through the literature, is this something that we can expect to see? Uh, for example, if you just treat with benzodiazepines, we can know with a high degree of certainty that if I give you a little bit of phenobarb, I'm going to have to use less benzo. So is is phenobarb, um, in your experience, very benzo sparing from what you've read and seen? As far as uh, my experience with that goes, I would say in the ICU setting, yes. In fact, our institutional protocol for alcohol withdrawal in the ICU um, uses phenobarbital only if the CWAS scores are going to be above 30 and it's proving to be benzodiazepine resistant. We'll actually give them the phenobarbital and then once their CWAS scores are back down, they'll go just back on to benzodiazepines. And I, there's numerous studies um, that have you know shown that obviously phenobarbital is benzosparing and the mechanism makes sense why. So from a mm-hmm. physiology standpoint, that's exactly what I would expect it to do, right? Exactly. Um, but in the context of this study, um, the hard part to explain was if we look at the, the CWAS scores, including like, so I figured the first score would be a great, hopefully pre-treatment, obviously chart documentation retrospectively is what it is. Um, but the first scores weren't significantly different. Um, and then the highest scores weren't significantly different across any of the groups. So then it becomes a matter of, you know, yeah, I can't say for certain that they got a total, uh, you know, their treatment was a little, I would say, more aggressive, having comparable amount of phenobarbital, but then added on benzodiazepines. Was that because these patients generally did present worse? Or is that because um, now what I saw, this is completely um, subjective, having looked at all the 600 encounters or so. Um, what I found is in the combination group treatment, I really wish, to be fair, that I would have added in an extra analysis to look at the time between doses of medications and reassessments. And I felt like if you got phenobarbital or just benzodiazepines, the treatment course was much more clean cut and refined. Patients reassessed in an orderly manner. Um, I felt like the time between doses was shorter. In the combination group, I felt like like, um, it got questionable. Okay, so we gave them some phenobarbital, but now are they being apprehensive to give them the benzos or did we accidentally over sedate them a little bit with the benzos and it's unclear what we're doing. And I sort of got this sense that the treatment process was just messier when they were combined in the decision-making and the reassessments versus either just using one or the other. Um, and that may explain why the length of stay was longer as well. Um, so hindsight, if I had to make one change to the study, I would have gone back and probably done an analysis to look at the time between each individual dose for the amount of work that that would be. But I felt like that may have have added to the study because at the end of the day, I can't say were they worse or not. You could say they were by the amount of drug they needed, but they were there longer. And we have a tendency to to keep treating through, right? There isn't really like a, a say, a goal CWAS score. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. but at the same time, their scores were never higher than another to say that they were worse. 
Um, and the thing that I thought was interesting, so your site, you say you do 10 milligram per kilogram load, um, even including our higher end of the standard deviation, we never went that high on anybody. So, um, you know, this could almost argue for a five milligram per kilogram load. And that would be something as like a follow-up study I would love to have done prospectively is maybe just load these patients, give them five milligrams per kilogram, see how they do. Can we send them home? Or at minimum, does that spare us the resources of the time, you know, to titrate them up to where they need to be? Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of set it and forget it, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm really glad that you, that you bring that up, you know, dosing wise, um, looking at your study, your cumulative benzodiazepine doses were around, you know, five milligrams in the monotherapy group and about three milligrams in the combination group, you know, um, am I, am I right on that? Um, for the, for the phenobarbital was, uh, exactly five and a half plus or minus. And then the combination group is 5.3. Okay. Almost identical. Yeah, exactly. And those are a little bit, I, I guess, at least in my experience on the lower end, um, some of the patients we see get get that in the first you know 30 minutes or so um and then the average CWA score of 13 so it was i mean a milder um alcohol withdrawal population you know and i think that makes sense with the, the when i read your study that these people you know i don't think would need the 10 migs per kilo IV phenobarb, even if they walked into my ED, you know, mm-hmm. and I think maybe if you, if the study had a sicker population with higher CWAS or a, po- a population that needed, you know, twice as much benzo, you know, to, to discharge or to be admitted, I think you may have maybe had different results, you know, is that kind of fair to say? Yeah. And that makes you wonder too. So, you know, patients with high recidivism, they may present, I think, differently potentially. So this, this is almost, uh, this is getting a little into the weeds, but I feel like, you know, you look at their blood alcohol level and some of these people have blood alcohol levels in the high five hundreds. Um, you know, obviously we don't always get it. doesn't really contribute to care, but I was trying to just see if I had enough information to even use that as a, a surrogate to look at potential for withdrawal and things like that. But, um, I feel like some of these people are able to be quite functional at a degree of intoxication. Um, and then they come in early enough where they're, we're not really playing catch up as often on a lot of these patients. Um, you know, many self present um, emergency services. They're bringing us quite a few. So it's, it almost is interesting about the timing of their presentation versus, you know, had it been another couple of hours or half a day or so, what would their presentation have been like? And that's just another thing that you really can't account for. Is it our emergency services are really good about taking alcohol withdrawal patients, getting them to us and we're getting on their treatment early um, or, or what is it? Cause I don't, you know, for that number of encounters and numbers of patients, you would think at least a few would be, you know, higher. And, and some were. This is obviously standard deviations don't really give you the the outliers, but um, that is actually another comment that has come up. Because even at my current site, you know, I do see, I feel like the, they do trend higher. Um, but CWAS scores being what they are, it could just be the comfortability of the staff to to make their CWAS score uh, evaluations. Yeah, very subjective. And thanks for pointing that out. You know, Alex, I, I have to remember that this study looked at a specific group of patients, you know, your aka your your frequent flyers. And so I, I think I have to remember to frame this study um as that. You know, this isn't just all patients that are coming in with alcohol withdrawal even like once in their life, right? You guys kind of focused on the people that had high rates of, of returning. So I think 
uh, thanks for explaining that. That actually makes a lot more sense as to why maybe the seawalls were lower and and things like that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, there's just one more thing that I wanted to ask you before before I let you go, and this is kind of a hot topic, you know, in the ED world and the pharmacy world, uh, with some uh, very polarizing views. But um, at your site, I guess, and at other sites that you've had experience with. What is your guys' protocol or what is the stance on giving somebody phenobarb, you know, even if you're if you're doing 10 mg per kilo IV or if you're doing what you guys did at your site with, you know, giving smaller doses up to your goal, um, giving them phenobarb and then discharging them home. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's frowned upon? Is that something that you guys just do routinely or is it something that you do and, and you kind of hesitate about it a little bit. What What's the vibe over there? Um, I'm going to frame this in the context that, you know, I've, I've really worked three emergency departments um, within Providence. I work at the Santa Rosa one primarily, but I do cross cover Napa, which is a definitely a different hospital. They're a level three different patient population, obviously being Napa County, uh, completely different providers. And for a long time, they're in an independent entity. So they have some practice inertia that's a little different than ours. And then obviously, uh, my residency site for San Francisco general, um, I would say at SF, the ability just to, to discharge them home, as long as they pass the walk test and they seemed to be, um, reasonably stable. Absolutely. Send them home. Perfect. That was actually part of the goal of this study was to see, could we get them out earlier and not admit them with phenobarbital in a sense, right? Right. If I had to really frame a null hypothesis, um, wasn't really what I found, but that was sort of the dream. Less resources, they go home earlier, <laughs> right. they go home faster. That'd be a wonder drug. Um, not so much the case. I would say at Providence, the usage of phenobarbital really starts to vary more by the physician. So Providence is not an academic center, whereas the academic center was. So you have a little bit more guidance on how to do things and what you want to see done. Where I'm at now does just seem to vary very specifically by what's the comfortability of the physician. And a lot of them, you know, if you're giving them the lower end of these doses, yeah, we'll still send them home. As long as they pack the walk, they pass the walk test, they seem to be, you know, doing all right. We have a safe discharge plan. Um, I don't know about your state, but California has pretty strict requirements for people who are underhoused to leave in the first place. And I promise you a lot of their barriers to discharge are no longer the usage of phenobarbital. It's usually the discharge plan where they're going. Um, but we'll, we'll absolutely discharge somebody. And I have leveraged this to prevent them from using loading doses or using too aggressive of a dose on redosing to not over-sedate these patients so they can go home, right? Um, oftentimes, that threshold that we see where people start to become concerned is around that once they've gotten more than 1,000 milligrams, now people start to become uncomfortable with discharging them. And they also start to become uncomfortable with what level of care do they need if we're admitting them. And... I would say that oftentimes it's because they do start to become decently sedated to which point they can't go home at that dose. Um, but as I see in my study, a lot of these patients didn't require, you know, you know, 10 milligram per kilogram or for an average American that only puts us into the high 700s. But, um, but for, for the sake of that argument, titrating your dose gets you to where they need to be. If we think about every patient on a imaginary X and Y status, right? So there's just some, access where this is how much they need to stabilize and then a nice long half-life of phenobarbital will allow them to self-taper out from their withdrawal, right? And that arbitrary uh, line of how much, you know, 
gala activity that they need back um, varies, but apparently it seems to be about the equivalent of five milligrams per kilogram in these patients. Um, so had we given them all 10 milligram per kilogram loads, it's very possible a lot of them would have been flatly oversedated because we gave them double what they needed to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of get back to an equilibrium. So I would say that that higher load probably puts you in a position where you may have to admit more people because you're giving them more than potentially that they need versus titrating them. And granted, you can titrate quite aggressively, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, depending on the rage and, and presentation. Um, and then you get them right where they need to be. And then you stop and then they self-taper, which um, so for me, my comfortability at most of my practice sites would be, yes, just because they got phenobarbital does not preclude them from being able to go home. But as long as you gave them the right amount of phenobarbital and we haven't entered, you know, over sedation land or they're not still not fully controlled or some other consideration like that. Um, and then obviously alcohol withdrawal presentation always falls into a couple of different groups. There's the, you know, I'm here because of my withdrawal and that's it. I'm here because I'm, I'm withdrawing and I want to seek treatment. And then obviously that group has it split into people who are just going to come back again. So, and then you have the, I'm in withdrawal because you've kept me here and this is iatrogenic you know, I would have drank otherwise. Yeah. Um, so trauma patients decide they're, they're on their own path, but, um, so, f- you know, that's for us, definitely not a barrier as long as we feel like they are not over sedated. And I think that some of what we see with this return within 48 hours, where, um, if I break down reasons for coming back, they're pretty much the same spread. Um, usually it was just guess what withdrawal again, which is somewhat impressive. Um, oftentimes it would be, you know, the rates of trauma or falls were similar between all of the groups. So it didn't seem to bias anybody towards having worse outcomes because they went home on this. Um, and I obviously can't adjudicate how many people picked up their tapering regimens or anything like that. That's just beyond the ability for me to look at in the study. So um, really can't say much more on it from there without, you know, better data. Yeah. Yeah. And did you guys actually send patients out on like an oral phenobarb taper for the most part or not for phenobarb? So okay. the phenobarb half-life, we felt like if we could get them, to a comfortable place, they would self-taper effectively based on the half-life. However, right. for any of the benzo groups, if the providers felt like they wanted to put them on a taper, we we gave them the oral taper option. Um, and since that generally wasn't really a part of their um, their inpatient stay, it didn't really affect my my patient selection or my or my total doses in any appreciable way. So it was just mentioned that it wasn't going to be an exclusion criteria. And in some ways, it might make it a fairer assessment versus the long half-life you see with uh, phenobarb. Um, so we allowed it, but adjudicating who actually acquired it and picked it up what is uh, oh, yeah. not within my purview. It would be exceedingly difficult you know, to track down who picked it up, who took the taper, how much of it did they take. Yeah, you know, I could so, have done yeah. an extensive cures report, cures being our uh, controlled drug tracking for the state. But sure. um, you know, I'm... No, there's not that many authors on this study, so a lot of this work has to be done by us. And <laughs> we need you know. to get some residents and students involved. That's yeah. that's the key takeaway message. <laughs> yeah, I, I envy sites with more manpower. So, um, yeah. So for me, you know, it was an interesting study. If I had to do it again, if I was to do a follow up study, there's definitely some things I would I would look at. Right, you know, loading some of these patients, like I said, not with ten, but perhaps five. Would that have been an easier way to go? Um, and then also having a little bit more perspective control, I think, would just help narrow out some uh, ambiguity that you get invariably with a retrospective study. But Absolutely. Well, we love the load. Um, I think it works well. Uh, again, it like you were saying, it just gets down to the provider 
uh, comfort and preferences. I've definitely have given lower doses, um, have discharged people, uh, have not discharged people. So yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. It Giving somebody a dose of phenobarb, it, it'll depend on the dose you gave and how they're doing clinically. Um, but the the more I, I practice, the more, you know, when I first started, I, I thought it would was like illegal, you know, to give somebody <laughs> phenobarb and send them home. And then you start thinking about, you know, phenobarb was an anti-epileptic drug. I mean, it, it still is. And people walked around with with levels that were higher than than what you're giving. You know, even if you're giving 10 mg per kilo, that's still a relatively kind of on the lower range of the level you can expect um, as opposed to somebody, for example, who's taking it for seizures, you know, back in the day. Um, of course, there's some things to think about like tolerance, et cetera. But, you know, these people were taking phenobarbital and were probably having a glass of wine at home or whatever. Not that we encourage that, but I, I think you kind of get more comfortable with with sending people home, especially when you have that patient where you can educate them and say, if you go home and, and drink or take a downer like a benzodiazepine you have a very high chance of dying Mm -hmm. (laughs) um we have had uh, a few conversations like that with very motivated very intelligent patients who were very understanding you know even after getting 10 mix per kilo and maybe a couple prn doses that felt fine enough to go home and it's hard to, to keep them in the ed um when, like you were saying, you really don't have to if if they're walking, they're stable, they understand the risks of going home. Um, so it's a, it's definitely a, a gray area, but it's it's something that I'm personally getting more comfortable with, and I'm glad to hear that that that's kind of your guys's your thoughts over there as well. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Any other any other points? Anything that you maybe wanted to mention earlier, but we didn't get to? You know, I don't, I don't really think so. I mean, I could probably wax poetic about things I'd, I'd like to do different on the study, like most folks probably can. Um, but I, I think that's, I think I've, I think I've touched on anything anyone wants to hear. And I'm sure people will disagree with all kinds of ways of doing in the study. And that's, uh, that's the joys of it, right? Oh, exactly, man. No, we all under everyone in the medical field, I, I, sh- I think, I hope understands how difficult it is to, to collect this data, especially, especially retrospectively, um, and especially kind of on your own, and then go out and try to publish it and make sense of it. Uh, it's very difficult. So thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for explaining your methods, explaining your thought process. It definitely made me understand the study better. So let's wrap up with some key points. This study looked at the safety and efficacy of three groups of patients, those who got phenobarb alone, those who got benzos alone, or those who received phenobarb in combination with benzos for the treatment of recurrent alcohol withdrawal. In 642 encounters, there was no difference in rates of admission, which were about 40% in each group, or return to the ED within 48 hours, which was about 15% in each group. But the combination phenobarb plus benzo group did have a significantly longer ED length of stay at eight and a half hours compared to either of the monotherapy groups at about six and a half hours. The group that received both also had higher rates of ICU admission and hypotension, even though all three groups had very similar CWAS scores. So although this study didn't find the optimal treatment to help keep these patients out of the ED, 
they did show that combining phenobarb with benzos can be risky. And we know why that is, since it was discussed in the previous two episodes. And although it wasn't an endpoint in the study, Alex talked about how combining phenobarb plus benzos just seemed messier. And I agree. I think it's best from a safety and possibly efficacy standpoint to pick one agent and just stick to that. As always, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for wanting to learn more about pharmacotherapy. If you have any questions or comments or anything else you'd like to add to this episode, or if you want to see my site's phenobarb protocol, please give me a shout on the ERRX podcast Instagram or Twitter page, or reach out to me on errxpodcast.com. I'd love to respond to all comments and questions. And finally, I'd also like to shout out listener Vanji for her donation on buymeacoffee.com. Thank you so much for supporting the show and keeping it free for everyone. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where I bring on a very special guest to talk about the intricacies of managing hyperkalemia. <laughs>